This is the Mosaic Church Podcast. Mosaic Church is committed to making disciples that discover Christ, connect in Christian community, and serve others and the world. We're going to continue on the subject uh, that I've really felt the Lord has called us is to answer questions, uh, questions that the church needs to answer. We talked about... um, pain and suffering. We've talked about the scripture. Is it reliable? Uh, we've talked about marriage, what, it, what constitutes a Christian marriage. And today, I did have a, a guest speaker. Uh, we attempted to get a guest speaker lined up, and I had other options, but it didn't, uh, it didn't fall together. So uh, I'm going to present the subject uh, is, does Christianity denigrate women? Does Christianity denigrate women? That's some of, the, some of the questions that people ask in challenging the church. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 8. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the, uh, he, in verse 36, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman at That town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss But this woman, from the time I've entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves, forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In order for us to get a really good biblical understanding of what God's plan is, we need to go back to the beginning, to the very beginning. Many times when we talk about sex and gender, Somehow we think of what the culture determines what that is, or biology, or the backdrop of human history. 
But from a Christian perspective, we need to go way back to the original plan. And God is not limited by culture, biology, or the human history. It is interesting, though, as we think about it, God created human beings the way he did. He could have created us as asexual beings for reproduction, but he did not. He created sex. Maybe a good analogy for us. We, talked, we just saw Ross and Deanna and the role of parenthood. And we see all through the Old Testament and New Testament, God's relationship, or he, he illustrates the relationship with God and his children. Fatherhood is mentioned many times, and Jesus tells us to pray to our Father, Matthew 6, 9. It is interesting, though, when you read the Old Testament, it has lots of, lots of uh, passages that describe God in a maternal way, in maternal terms. Isaiah 49 being an example, verse 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she had just born? Although she may forget, I will not forget you. And there are countless verses like that. I remember when Robin was nursing our first child, Melise, she was always exhausted. Now, uh, on a side note, um, I wasn't the best helper at night. Now, I have uh, some defense because I can't hear in my right ear. I would sleep purposefully on my good ear. So, uh, I didn't hear anything. <laughs> uh, I've been using the ear card for all my life. It always comes in handy. So, but she was exhausted because she would have to get up and feed the baby. But she did say one time, I remember, she said, mommyhood has given her a glimpse into God. She understood long-suffering for her children. And she recognized that our children were, especially at that age, were utterly dependent upon God. And so I believe God uses these relationships to give us a glimpse of who he is. We, we shared this a couple weeks ago when we talked about uh, sex, is that in the beginning, God creates humanity in his image and in his likeness. If we read Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 29, we can see that God gives his people three roles. The role to rule, the role to relate, and the role to create. So the question you and I should be asking is that why did God make both male and female? Why did male and female, was it needed to procreate? And we answered kind of that question a few weeks ago because God is relational. It was difficult. I can't imagine when God says, let us make man in our image. He's a person who's in relationship with God the Spirit and the Son. When you read Genesis chapter 2, specifically 18, it says that God declared it not good that man should be alone, which is very interesting. Because if you read earlier, you can see that when God created creation, 
Everything he created, he said, it was good. It was good. It was good. And then he makes even man, and he says, it is good. But all of a sudden, there's a turnaround for the first time. He says something that is not good, that man should not be alone. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 21, it says this, and it's a famous verse, and you probably heard it at your marriage ceremony. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave or hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Intimacy, sexual union, joins men and women in an intimate relationship as they become fruitful and multiply. God exists in relationship. God loves his creation, his image bearers. And even though we are not God, we carry his likeness. And there's a desire for unity. We know that in chapter three of Genesis, Things go horribly wrong. The disobedience of Adam and Eve break both the humanity relationship, the human relationship, and it breaks that relationship between his creation and the creator. As we read, and if you've read many times, it's a chapter that began with innocence and intimacy, but now is being replaced with shame and blame. And then we go from life yields to death. Gone, if you read the scripture, is the day of being unashamed, united in love between men and women. Now there's conflict and a power struggle. I'm here to tell you, uh, this one thing, I just, again, just feel strong in my heart that uh, this marriage uh, conference is incredibly important for our church and for our families. But that struggle between husband and wife was very strong in my relationship with Robin in the beginning. And, and if you've been here long enough, you know those stories. We don't try to hide how difficult it was for, for Robin and I. There were multiple times we thought of calling it off. But by God's grace, he kept us together. Rebellion was not part of God's original plan. Where's my son, Micah? We were talking about that. I've been reading the Old Testament. I'm in the middle of uh, going through the chronological Bible reading plan. Uh, let me encourage you to read the whole Bible. We talked about that, not just portion of the Bible. You know, don't, don't get sucked into what we call theological sweet tooths or uh, biblical passage sweet tooths. We just kind of go to, to one aspect of the scripture. Read the whole thing. Read the whole thing. Start in Genesis. So I've been rereading the Old Testament, and we can see sin everywhere. We can see how sin was uh, appalling and how they treated women by men. And, and if you keep reading the Scripture, you'll see it vice versa. If you read the whole Bible, you'll see stories of murder and rape, exploitation, but all of this are describing what happened. It's not prescribing what should happen. Amen? The Bible does not endorse 
just because it reports it. It just represents something realistic, a picture of how human beings treat each other. And especially how human beings wield their power in a negative way. Isaiah 54 says, For your maker is your husband, declares the Lord of hosts. There are so many parenting metaphors that liken God to a father and sometimes like a mother. But in the marriage metaphor, the roles are never reversed. God is always the husband and never the wife. And this is important. Why is it important? Because without it, it would be incredibly difficult for us to describe the invisible, transcendent, ungraspable God. As you read the Old Testament, we discover that marriage was not a happy marriage between God and his people. God's people continually were unfaithful, were worshiping other gods and idols. When you read the Old Testament, you'll see that it paints a brutally real picture of male worldliness. But within the biblical metaphor, God is unrelentfully faithful. And I love that. He desires that love and devotion of his people, even though these people hurt God, he still loves and is devoted to them. God hurts and hates it when his people go astray and when they give themselves to other gods and his love is jealous which is a very appropriate reaction to a loving, from a loving husband to a cheating people. God is forgiving. And even though God has every right to reject his people, he wants them back and back and back. There are many metaphors where it is described as husband and wife being reconciled. So the marriage relationship is a metaphor even though the marriage, especially as we read in the Old Testament, was a difficult marriage. How can a holy, faithful, love-filled God live with loveless, faithless, sin-filled people? There's one word for that. His name is Jesus. Jesus comes as the bridegroom. Jesus is the living fulfillment of every Old Testament hope. That's why I love singing that song when Jesus rise from the dead. He is, he is the fulfillment of every Old Testament hope. When asked why his disciples did not fast, what did Jesus say? You can make a wedding guest fast. Can you make a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? Jesus steps into history as a groom. And if you read the gospel, especially the gospel of Luke, the portrayal of women is stunningly countercultural. I encourage you to read the whole book of Luke and to see how many times Jesus includes women in the story. Totally countercultural. Here are a few. Before Jesus' birth, two people are visited by the angel Gabriel. 
Do you remember who they were? One of them he visited was Zechariah, who became John the Baptist's father. The other was who? Mary. Both asked Gabriel the same question. How can this be? But only one of these people was commended when she asked, how can this be? Only Mary was. The prominent role of women in Luke's gospel continues when Elizabeth prophesied over Jesus in the womb and as the prophet Simeon and the prophetess Anna prophesied over the baby Jesus. Do you see how this is so countercultural to add stories of women about the beginning of Jesus's, uh, well, in the story of the Gospels? I'm, I'm building a case, and I, I won't be able to finish the case uh, until two weeks from uh, today. Jesus consistently weaves women into his his preaching. In his very first sermon, he enrages the, his audience with two Old Testament examples of God's love reaching beyond the Jews. You remember what happened? One is a woman and the other is a man that can be found in Luke chapter 4, and he does this. It seems like he always makes a, a story about a man and then he mixes it with a story of a woman. You remember the story of the woman, the parable of the lost coin in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 18, the, the woman's prayer, the parable where the persistent widow consistently prays and, and, and is weaved into the story with this male prayer, this male-oriented prayer, uh, the, who happens to be the, a not-so-good guy, the, the Pharisee, the tax collector. Even when Jesus is about to be crucified, he stops and talks to his women mourners, found in Luke chapter 23. I know this doesn't make sense for us in 2021, but try to picture yourself 2,000 plus years back in a male-dominated culture. Jesus pays attention to women throughout all his sermons, his preaching, and this is remarkable, and it's not insignificant. Jesus is always treating and threading women in his story, and especially in the healing accounts. Luke chapter 4, verse 33 through 35. Jesus, what does he do? He heals a man with an unclean spirit. And then in verse 38, he heals Simon's mother-in-law. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus heals a centurion servant, and then raises a, a widow's son out of compassion for the grieving mom. Luke chapter 8, Jesus heals a man, and then he heals a woman who had the blood issue. In chapter 13, in Luke's version, the last healing, it was a woman with a disabling spirit. The men object and protest about Jesus doing this. And what does Jesus call them? He calls them hypocrites and reminds them this important thing here, especially in those days, 
is that the, women's were the women were still the daughters of Abraham. Jesus even goes even further and he elevates women as moral examples. As we just read in the beginning of the sermon, at the very end of the story, they basically wanted to judge her, but he raises her up like, hey, this lady's faith is what we should emulate. Not Simon. A woman disrupts the party. She weeps and cleans the feet of Jesus with her tears, anoints him with oil, perfume, and Simon is appalled. He says to himself, if Jesus really was the prophet, he would know who this woman was. But Jesus turns this whole thing in contrast and puts it on its head. And it was basically saying, Simon, you should be shameful in how you're behaving. And he elevates this woman's behavior. Just think of it. In that day, Simon had every advantage. He was already religiously admired. She was despised. He was a man in that culture, and she was a woman in that culture. He's the one that's hosting a dinner, and she's crashing the dinner. So much so, she puts herself in an embarrassing position of prostrate and, and bowing. But according to Jesus, she surpasses Simon on every count. Just read the story in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 21, Jesus commends a poor widow with her two small gifts of copper coins. In Jesus' eyes, what does he see? He sees that what she's doing is greater, a woman of more faith than those who were rich who were giving more money. Again, place yourself in those days the stories that Jesus is weaving in, in bringing in women into the story. Now, some might say, well, Jesus, didn't Jesus have 12 disciples? That's what I thought. But if you read the rest of Luke, there are many women who followed Jesus too. So it wasn't just male disciples who were following Jesus, but there were women. Luke chapter 10 we meet two of Jesus' disciples who are walking, excuse me, Jesus' female friends. My typo here says Mario and Martha. It's Mary and Martha. I can fix that. I was thinking of myself. Very interesting when you read this story. We're almost through. We're going to pause and finish in two weeks. You see that Mary is playing the traditional role. Martha is playing the, Mary's playing the traditional role. I'm getting mixed up here. Uh, by serving, excuse me, Martha. Mary's assuming the traditional male role, isn't she? What is she doing? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus with the other disciples. Martha asked Jesus to correct and tell Mary to get out and start serving. But what does Jesus do? He affirms Mary by saying that Mary has chosen the good portion 
and it will not be taken away from her. Luke chapter 10, verse 42. Luke chapter 24. This is the resurrection. Some of the female disciples visit the tomb. Some of the female followers, uh, Jesus' followers, visit the tomb to anoint his body. And there they encountered angels who announced the resurrection. And he announced it to women. And they went and reported to the other apostles. But they didn't believe them. Peter runs to the tomb to check the facts. But even then... They're not convinced. But what does Jesus do? He rebukes the two who are walking on the road to Emmaus. They recount the woman's reports, but they didn't believe it or absorb it. And Jesus rebukes them and says, foolish ones, slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Again, it's so hard for us to see in 2021, but if you think of the time where a these women were in the story and put in a very positive light. There are many more passages in the gospel that elevate women. John chapter 4, John chapter 8. And I'm here to tell you, part A, that Jesus' valuing of women is unmistakable. In a culture where women were devalued and often exploited, it underscores their equal status before God and his desire for personal relationship, not with just men, but women. So this morning, I'm here to tell you that people might think the church or the scriptures denigrate women, but I'm here to tell you the opposite. However, we have a checkered history in the church. Uh, a history where we've, um, men have misunderstood the scripture and have abused and wielded their power in a way that was not something to glorify God with. So next time when we meet, I want to talk about the verse that everybody wants to talk about, about wives submitting to your husbands. Uh, Paul's message on marriage and women in the church. But I'm here to tell you that the, the criticism, again, might be a description, but it's not the prescription that Jesus and God has laid out for us. So I, I hope that you begin to do your own reading. Again, our sermon series the last few weeks is not to be a, a full encompass uh, answer to the question but it begins to make you want to say, you know what, I need to do my own research. But these are questions that we need to answer, The people are asking, especially those who are outside the church and maybe even inside the church. But hopefully uh, it'll cause you to, to pray and ask God to give you insight and do your own research. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Thank you for... Thank you for all the women in scriptures that's, uh, that have made a massive difference in the church. Lord, we can see what you do in John, and we can see in the early church. And Lord, um, if I'm not mistaken, all across this globe, it, are, it is women who are really, uh, are really running and, and making the church grow. We say thank you, Lord. 
Help us, Father, uh, to see your creation the way you've designed for your creation to be. Lord, help us to not be skewed by culture or heritage, but Lord, help us to put on the lens of the scriptures, of the gospel. Lord, we say thank you for all our women in our church, all the women who are, uh, help make Mosaic what it is. Lord, thank you. I want to say thank you to, for my wife, Lord, that there's no way we could be where we are today for wasn't for my wife, Lord, in my life, in the life of our church. I say thank you, Jesus. Help us, Father, to read scripture, to learn, and to grow. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. We want to thank you for listening. We pray that you were blessed and encouraged. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to this podcast and listen whenever you like. To find out more about Mosaic Church, please visit www.mosaicchurchtlh.com.